Section 30 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Midlin, Oakland, California. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 19, Part 2. The Last Byzantine Empresses. The introduction of Maria of Trebizond is preceded by some romantic adventures in the private life of the court, of which the chroniclers give us a fairly ample account. Irene had six sons, of whom the eldest, John, married the daughter of the Grand Duke of Moscow in the year 1414. He was already twenty-four years old and of irregular life, but the hands of the princesses and princes of Byzantium were no longer sought in the courts of the world. Anna was a child of eleven years, and we may assume that John remained with his mistresses until, three years later, Anna was carried off by the plague. Again, there seems to have been some difficulty in finding a wife for the heir to the throne, but in or about the year 1420, legates were sent to Italy, and they returned with two eligible young ladies. Cleope, the beautiful and gifted daughter of Count Malatesta of Rimini, was married to Irene's second son, Theodore, and went to spend an unhappy life with that restless prince in Lacedaemonia. For John, the legates had brought Sophia, daughter of the Marquis of Montferrat, and she and her husband at once received the imperial title. The appearance of Sophia of Montferrat on the imperial stage was brief and eventful. She was a tall and very graceful young woman, with golden hair that fell to her feet, a beautiful neck and broad round shoulders, fine arms and hands and fingers like crystal, says the chronicler. But nature had spoiled these many perfections by misshaping her nose and giving the very careless finish to her eyes and eyebrows. John disliked her, keeping himself coldly aloof from her and pressed his father to send her back to Montferrat. A more chatty chronicler, however, gives a more serious reason for John's dislike. Sophia had been as virtuous as she was beautiful until she came to Constantinople, but whether it was the taint in the atmosphere of the court, most of the paleology have natural children, or the example of her husband, she quickly lapsed. There was a natural son of her husband about the court, and this youth she incited into a most unnatural relation. A maid of the court caught them in flagrant delicto and told her lover, and the lover informed John. By making a hole in the wall of the bedroom, John convinced himself of the truth of the story and was very indignant. It may be stated on behalf of Sophia that, when John spoke of the indignity to one of the court jesters, he was reminded that he had himself some time before stolen his son's mistress. It is therefore not impossible that the seduction was on the side of the youth and had a vindictive character. Such was the kind of life witnessed in the last ruins of the Eastern Empire. John insisted that Sophia must go home. Manuel, possibly conscious of the difficulty of finding alliances, was reluctant to send her. Sophia found her position intolerable, however, and decided to run away with the aid of the Genoese of Galata. They moored a galley at the foot of the imperial gardens, and Sophia, 
pretending to go for a stroll in the garden with her Italian maids and young courtiers, walked to the quay and was shipped over the water to Pera before her flight became known. It was published in the city the next day, and there was much buckling of arms and preparing of boats to avenge this last outrage of the hated Genoese. Manuel was, however, now overshadowed by his son, and Sophia was permitted to depart quietly for her home. The chronicler adds that she was received with great honor and rejoicing at Montferrat and ended her days in a nunnery. The date of Sophia's flight and of John's third marriage is difficult to determine. The plainest reading of the contradictory chronicles is that the trouble occurred in the last year of Manuel's reign, and the flight took place a month after his death, but this is inconsistent with the express declaration that the old emperor intervened in the dispute. Manuel died on the 25th of July, 1425. For some years, the ambition of the Turk, who had quickly recovered from the heavy blows dealt by Timur, had fully revived and had given him great anxiety. A young sultan, Murad II, had succeeded to the throne, and Manuel had imprudently recognized a pretender to the succession. When the young sultan vigorously took the field, hanged the pretender, and drew up under the walls of Constantinople, Manuel, now a feeble old man of seventy-five, left the direction of affairs to John, and retired to pursue that ardent study of the scriptures which absorbed him in his later years. John abjectly apologized, but the angry sultan ranged his machines against the walls and proceeded to batter them. He was drawn off for a time by the strategy of John, who had the sultan's brother conveyed to Brusa and set up as sultan. But Murad returned more angry than ever, and one of the last earthly sounds to catch the ear of the aged Manuel was the roar of the first cannons that seemed to have appeared at Constantinople. The diffusion of knowledge at the time may be gathered from the fact that one of the most learned of the chroniclers in discussing these bombards observes that he does not think they are of very ancient origin. Before the end of the siege, Manuel was warned of an attack of apoplexy that his death was near. He donned the black robes, became plain brother Matthew, and died two days, not two years, as Finley says, afterwards at the age of seventy-seven. Irene also then retired from the world and became the nun Hypomene, whom we shall later find endeavoring to settle the quarrels of her selfish children. She remained mistress despoini of the empire and watched its slow decay with concern. John was able, after the death of his father, to obtain peace from the sultan at the price of a heavy annual subsidy, and the empire entered upon its last quarter of a century of melancholy decay. Long years of effort had taught the sultans that their siege engines were not powerful enough to crack the heavy shell in which earlier emperors had enclosed the city, and they were content to hold it in vassalage and draw a large tribute from its sinking revenue. The time had gone by for the last serious effort to save the empire. Its trade had passed to the Italians, and of the provinces from which it had so long extorted its rich supply of gold, there now remained only a few towns to the west of Constantinople, a part of the Peloponnesus and Thessalonica, which would soon be sold to Venice for 50,000 gold coins. 
The metropolis, therefore, continued to shrink within its 18-mile enclosure, and as a severe pestilence fell on the inhabitants for the last time in 1431, they were reduced to something like 100,000 instead of the million they had once been. It was over this dismal little empire that the last empress, Maria of Trebizond, was called to preside. Whether the flight of Sophia came before or after the death of Manuel, John V, who succeeded his father, soon found it necessary to seek a bride. He married, in 1427, the daughter of Alexis of Trebizond, a handsome woman of excellent character, and we are fortunate enough to have a short description from the pen of a French knight of Maria and her desolate surroundings. Bertrandon de la Brocchieri made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and returned through Constantinople in the year 1432. The plague had ravaged it in the previous year, and Bertrandon sympathetically refers to the broad spaces of ruin that half-filled the enclosure within the walls. He notes that the Greeks are still busy with their processions, religious and imperial, and that they still cherish in their churches such important relics as the pillar at which Christ was scourged, the board on which his body was laid out, the gridiron on which St. Lawrence had been martyred, and the stone on which Abraham had offered food to his angel visitors. Apparently, the credentials of these relics had not been imposing enough to convince Western purchasers, indulgent as they were. When the knight heard that the empress was about to proceed to St. Sophia and on to the Blackerne Palace, he went to the square to see the procession. We know what the spectacle would have been at an earlier date. First would come a corps of excubitors or Varangians with shining axes and gold accoutrements, clearing a way for the crowd. Then a regiment of pale-faced eunuchs, their leaders dressed in white silk and glittering with jewels, would precede a large body of maids and dames, from foreign slaves to the greatest ladies of the empire, more superbly dressed than most of the queens of Europe. And lastly would come the gold-plated, gem-encrusted litter, drawn by four white horses, possibly with one of the highest nobles in Europe at the reign of each, the empress sitting stiffly in her gold-cloth tunic, over which spread the mantle of purple silk with deep embroidered edges, and, if it were a solemn occasion, a massive domed crown on her head, from which large diamonds and pearls fell in long chains to her shoulders. Very different was the spectacle witnessed by Bertrandon de la Brocchiere. Maria's suite consisted of two ladies, three eunuchs, and three aged ministers. With this poor escort, she was to drive the several miles of road to the Blackerne Palace. She wore a high hat, probably a silk-covered mitre, with three golden plumes, and she had broad, flat rings set with a few jewels in her ears. She was young and fair. I should not, says the pilgrim, have had a fault to find with her had she not been painted, and assuredly she had not any need of it. The paint seems to have been the one surviving portion of the luxurious inheritance of the empresses of Constantinople. Maria was a woman of tame and mediocre, if faultless, character, and as her husband was weak and incompetent, 
the miserable empire lay helplessly awaiting the end. Patriotism was an extinct virtue. The absence of truth, honor, and patriotism, says Finley, among the Greek aristocracy during the last century of the Eastern Empire, is almost without a parallel in history. The Western Empire had, even in its last years, had its Symmachus, its Praetextatus, and its Flavianus. Irene's sons could do no more than quarrel for their selfish interests in the ruins. Andronicus, who had charge of Thessalonica, which was restored to the Greeks for a time, sold it to Venice and went to enjoy his fortune in the Peloponnesus. In that last fragment of the empire, Theodore and Constantine were on the verge of civil war owing to the clash of their petty ambitions. There seemed to be no resource in the East, and John, leaving the city in charge of his wife and mother, went to make a last appeal to his fellow Christians of the West to stem the Mohammedan tide. It was now clear that the Greek church would, as the price of assistance, have to surrender its independence to the papacy, and John took with him the patriarch and his bishops. It may be read in history how, at the councils of Ferrara, 1438, and Florence, 1439, the Greek bishops abandoned the positions they had fiercely maintained for so many centuries against the Western Church and, with one exception, signed the Roman claims. I will add from the Byzantine writers only that whatever arguments were discussed in open council and however pressing the need of the empire, it was a secret and generous payment of gold to the Byzantine bishops which finally convinced them. They bargained like Syrian peddlers for their signature. It may also be read in history how John returned in deep dejection to his mother. Instead of the promised fleet, the Pope had given him only two galleys and three hundred men and a very moderate sum of money. His wife, Maria, had died during his absence. The Sultan was pressing for an explanation of this visit to Italy, and the people and lower clergy of Constantinople were infuriated at the surrender of their spiritual independence and were now treacherously joined by the corrupt bishops who had signed the decrees. John wearily sustained the attack, assuring the Sultan that he had visited Italy only in order to discuss certain details of the Christian faith and secretly pressing the Pope and the Western monarchs to fulfill their promises. Hippomene, now an aged and venerable lady, sadly watched the struggle of her sons and endeavored to curb their selfish tempers. Demetrius, her youngest son, recollected that he, unlike John, had been born in the Porphyra and disputed the shaking throne of his brother. He gathered about him a ragged army of Turks and looted whatever was left of the suburbs beyond the walls until his force melted away on account of the poverty of the plunder and he consented to be reconciled. Theodore, the second son, complained that he had not enough income to maintain his state in the town of Celembria, which he governed, and he demanded a share of John's. It was refused, and he in turn was about to lead troops against the capital when John, in his fifty-eighth year, was removed by a greater power, on the 31st of October, 1448, from the scene of his troubles. No one even now suspected that the next emperor would be the last, that in five years 
the crescent would glitter over the imperial palaces, and the struggle for the throne broke out afresh. Demetrius alone was in the city when John died, and he noisily renewed his claim to the purple, but his character was too well known for him to find serious adherents. His mother united with the citizens in preventing him from succeeding, and they sent legates to ask the sultan to allow Constantine, the ablest of the brothers, to be crowned. He had lately been opposed to the sultan, but permission was granted, and to his despotate at Sparta the legates were sent with the imperial ensigns. Constantinople did not even enjoy a last coronation, as the new emperor was crowned at Sparta on the 6th of January, 1449, and would not have the ceremony repeated. He favored the union of the churches. He reached Constantinople in March, and the royal brothers gathered in the presence of Hippomene and such nobles as Constantinople could still boast to swear resonant oaths of peace and loyalty. Constantine had been twice married and widowed when, in his early forties, he ascended the throne. His first wife, Theodora, daughter of the Count of Tocco, had died in 1429. His second wife, Catherine, daughter of Notaris Peleologus, had died in 1443, two years after her marriage. There were no children of either marriage, and Constantine made it one of his first duties to provide a third wife and an heir to the throne. The historian Francis was entrusted with this delicate mission, and he set out from Constantinople with an escort which, it was thought, would impress the king of Iberia and the emperor of Trebizond, to whom he was sent. It was, as he describes it, a weird mixture of monks, musicians, and medical men. Their baggage consisted mainly of musical instruments instead of the superb robes and plate that an earlier escort might have taken, and Francis says that they did impress and astonish the foreign courts. But they were unfortunately wrecked on the way to Iberia, a country between the Black Sea and the Caspian, and seemed to have been detained for nearly two years by lack of funds. And they then discovered that the king of Iberia expected a gift for his daughter instead of presenting one with her, and returned unsuccessful to Constantinople. In the meantime, apparently on the 23rd of March, 1450, Hippomene had brought to a close her long and troubled life. With her death, the series of empresses of Constantinople comes to an end, but their story cannot be intelligibly concluded without a glance at the great catastrophe which, three years later, swept away the tottering thrones and made an end of Christian Byzantium. The Sultan, Murad II, who had so long looked with indulgent eye on the remnant of the Byzantine Empire, died in 1451. His son and successor, Mohammed II, was a young man of 21 years, a very able, highly cultivated, and extremely ambitious young prince. To him, the existence of this Christian island, the city of Constantinople, in the ocean of Mohammedan conquest, was an intolerable anomaly. The Turks had long since carried the crescent over what we now call Turkey in Europe, and it was only by sea that Constantinople could communicate directly with the other Christian powers. To put an end to this Christian avenue into the heart of his dominion and make the great city the capital of the Mohammedan world was the early ambition of Mohammed II. Probably every sultan for a hundred years or more had desired this, but their siege 
machinery had hitherto proved incapable of shattering the stout old walls of that city. Constantine the Eleventh underrated the young sultan and very soon gave him a pretext for an attack. Mohammed had signed a truce with the Hungarians and gone to settle certain disturbances in his Asiatic dominions when he received a most insolent and offensive message from Constantinople. He must at once increase the pension of Prince Orkin, the nephew of Suleiman, then living in retirement at Constantinople, or else the Greeks will consider Orkin's claim to the Turkish throne. It was the last blunder of the paleology. Mohammed courteously heard and dismissed the legates and proceeded to pacify his Asiatic province. Constantine had grossly failed to appreciate the young sultan's character. After his coronation at Adrianople, his Christian vassals, the emperors of Trebizond and Constantinople, the Duke of Athens, etc., had hastened to do homage, and had seen only an accomplished, amiable, and, in private life, vicious young man from whom they had little to fear. Shortly afterwards, the court at Constantinople was alarmed to hear that a large army of Turkish workmen had arrived at a spot on the Asiatic coast only five miles from the city and were, with great rapidity, building a powerful fort which would command the entrance to the Black Sea. Constantine sent a protest. Mohammed disdainfully replied that he would do as he liked in his own dominions. In time, the Turkish soldiers of the district fell to quarrels with Constantine's subjects, and the emperor, ordering the gates of the city to be closed, demanded some recompense. Mohammed at once declared war and went to Adrianople to concentrate his forces and gather a more powerful armament than his predecessors had used. The value of powder was now realized, and although they were crude objects of only moderate effectiveness, immense canyons, which could throw stone balls weighing more than a hundred pounds, were associated with the old rams and slings and towers. Constantine quickly realized the gravity of his position, and made every effort to patch the fortifications, enlist troops, and provision the town. An urgent appeal was sent to Italy, and hundreds of volunteers and adventurers were attracted, though the Pope was still mainly concerned about the recognition of his supremacy, and sent a cardinal who distracted the doomed city with fierce religious controversy. When the hour came, Constantine found that barely 6,000 Greeks could be induced to enlist in the last defense of their city, and these with other two or three thousand Italians, had to hold fifteen miles of wall, with many gates, against seventy thousand Turks and three hundred vessels. On the 12th of December, 1452, the Church of St. Sophia rang with its last great Christian celebration, the solemn union of the Latin and Greek churches, the price of that secular aid which was destined never to arrive. Four months later, the vanguard of the Turks was decried from the walls, and day by day the endless regiments and engines of attack and the monstrous cannons came from the line of the horizon and took up their stations. For a time, the spirits of the besieged were maintained by those little successes which so often precede a great catastrophe. Four large Italian ships had fought their way through the Turkish fleet and brought provisions. Mohammed's biggest gun had burst. A general attack of the enemy had been repulsed. 
but the incessant rain of projectiles made at last a ghastly breach in the stout wall, and on the 29th of May, before dawn, the dreaded Janissaries flung themselves at the defenders. The last of the paleology died like a man. Later in the day, the victorious Turks swept over his body and the bodies of some thousands of his people, and the last remnant of the Byzantine Empire was swallowed up in the Mohammedan tide. And the relics of its culture passed westward, and, meeting and blending with the humanism of the later Middle Ages, begot the new man and new woman of the Renaissance, the heralds of modern times. This is the end of Section 30. Recording by Nancy Midland, Oakland, California. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCade.